Hello, and thank you for listening to Art History at Bedtime. My name is Bendel Grosvenor. This story is the life of Sir Anthony Van Dyke, who was born in 1599 and died in 1641. It was first published in 1762 by Horace Walpole as part of his Anecdotes of Painting in England. Sir Anthony Van Dyke, whose works are so frequent in England that the generality of our people can scarce avoid thinking him their countryman, was born at Antwerp in 1598, the only son of a merchant, and of a mother who was admired for painting flowers in small, and for her needleworks in silk. Van Dyck was first placed with Van Balen, who had studied at Rome, and painted figures both in large and small. But the fame of Rubens drew away to a nobler school the young congenial artist. The progress of the disciple speedily raised him to the glory of assisting in the works from which he learned. Fame, that always supposes jealousy is felt where there are grounds for it, attributes to Rubens an envy of which his liberal nature, I believe, was incapable, and makes him advise Van Dyck to apply himself chiefly to portraits. I shall show that jealousy, at least emulation, is rather to be ascribed to the scholar than to the master. If Rubens gave the advice in question, he gave it with reason, not maliciously. Van Dyck had a peculiar genius for portraits. His draperies are finished with a minuteness of truth, not demanded in historic compositions. Besides, his invention was cold and tame, nor does he anywhere seem to have had much idea of the passions and their expression. Portraits require none. If Rubens had been jealous of Van Dyck, would he, as all their biographers agree he did, persuade him to visit Italy, whence himself had drawn his greatest lights? Van Dyck, after making presents to Rubens of two or three histories, and the famous portrait of the latter's wife, set out for Italy and made his first residence at Genoa. From thence he went to Venice, which one may call the metropolis of the Flemish painters, who seem so naturally addicted to colouring that even in Italy they see only with Flemish eyes. Van Dyck imbibed so deeply the tints of Titian that he is allowed to approach nearer to the carnations of that master even than Rubens. Sir Antony had more delicacy than the latter, but like him never reached the grace and dignity of the antique. He seldom even arrived at beauty. His Madonnas are homely, his ladies so little flattered that one is surprised he had so much custom. He has left us to wonder that the famous Countess of Carlisle could be thought so charming, and had not Waller been a better painter, Saccharissa would make little impression now. One excellence he had, which no portrait painter ever attained except Sir Godfrey Nella. The hands are often the finest part of his pictures. He went to Rome and lived splendidly, avoiding the low conversation of his countrymen, and distinguished by the appellation of the Pittore Cavalieresco. It was at Rome he drew that capital portrait of Cardinal Bentivoglio, who, having been nuncio in Flanders, had a partiality for their artists, and as he celebrated their history with his pen, was in return, almost immortalised, by one of their best pencils. Van Dyck, while at Rome, received an invitation to Palermo, and went thither. There he painted Prince Philibert of Savoy, the Viceroy, and a painter's of some name Sophonisba Anguissola, then at the age of ninety-one. But the plague soon drove him from Sicily, 
He returned to Genoa, where he had gained the highest reputation, and where he has left many considerable works. He went back to Antwerp and practised both history and portrait. Of the former kind were many applauded altarpieces. In the latter were particularly the heads of his contemporary artists. He drew them in chiaroscuro on small panels, thirty-five of which are in the collection of the Countess of Cardigan at Whitehall. Admirable is the variety of attitudes and airs of heads, but in those pieces he meant to surpass as well as record. Hearing of the favour King Charles showed to the arts, Van Dyck came to England and lodged with his friend Geldorp, a painter, hoping to be introduced to the king. It is extraordinary he was not. He went away chagrined, but his majesty, soon learning what a treasure had been within his reach, ordered Sir Kenelm Digby, who had sat to Van Dyck, to invite him over. He came and was lodged among the king's artists at Blackfriars, Thither the king went often by water, and viewed his performances with singular delight, frequently sitting to him himself, and bespeaking pictures of the queen, his children, and his courtiers, and conferring the honour of knighthood on him at St. James's on the 5th of July, 1632. This was soon attended by the grant of an annuity of £200 a year for life. The patent is preserved in the rolls, and dated 1633, in which Van Dyck is styled Painter to His Majesty. I have already mentioned the jealousy of Daniel Mitens on this occasion. Of the various portraits of Van Dyck of King Charles, the principal are a whole length in the coronation robes at Hampton Court, the head has been engraved by virtue, another in armour on a dun horse at Blenheim Palace, a whole length in armour at Houghton, another, a large piece, at the Duke of Grafton's, in which the king, a most graceful figure in white satin with his hat on, is just descended from his horse, at a distance, a view of the Isle of Wight. Another shows the king in armour on a white horse, with Monsieur de Saint-Antoine, his equerry, holding his helmet. The head of the latter is fine, the king's is probably not an original. This and the following are at each end of the gallery at Kensington. At Windsor is a beautiful half-length of the Queen in white. Many portraits of her pretend to be by Van Dyck, but none are so lovely than this. Van Dyck painted, too, for the King, a twelfth Roman emperor to complete the set of Titian in the room of one which was spoiled and left at Mantua. They cost the King one hundred pounds apiece, and after his death were bought by the Spanish ambassador, the first purchaser of those effects. The Flemings gave any price for the works of Van Dyck from the king's collection. Sir Peter Lely, as may be seen in his catalogue, had several capital ones. But it is at the Earl of Pembroke's, at Wilton's, that Van Dyck is on his throne. The great salon is entirely furnished by his hand. There is that principal picture of Earl Philip and his family, which, though damaged, would serve alone as a school of this master. Yet, with great admiration of him, I cannot but observe how short he falls in his model of Titian. I have reserved to the last the mention of the finest picture, in my opinion, of this master. It is of the Earl of Strafford and his secretary at the Marquis of Rockingham's at Wentworth House in Yorkshire. I can forgive Van Dyck any insipid portraits of perhaps insipid people when he showed himself capable of conceiving and transmitting the idea of the greatest man of the age. 
Van Dyke was paid £40 for a half-length and £60 for a whole length, a more rational proportion than that of our present painters, who receive an equal price for the most insignificant part of the picture. Van Dyke was indefatigable, and, keeping a great table, often detained the persons who sat to him to dinner, for an opportunity of studying their countenances and of retouching their pictures again in the afternoon. Sir Peter Lely told Mrs. Beale that Lanier had assured him he had sat seven entire days to him, morning and evening, and that notwithstanding Van Dyke would not once let him look at the picture till he was content with it himself. This was the portrait that determined the king to invite him to England a second time. In the summer he lived at Eltham in Kent, in an old house there said to have been his. Virtue saw several sketches of stories from Ovid in two colours ascribed to him. At the Duke of Grafton's is a fine half-length of Van Dyke by himself, when young, holding up his arm, the hand declined. There is a print of it and two others of him older, one looking over his shoulder, the other with a sunflower. At Hampton Court in the apartment below is his mistress, Margaret Lemon, highly finished. There is a print of the same person by Holler, but not from this picture. In the pocket-book of R. Simons that I have mentioned, he says, it was much wondered that he, Van Dyke, should openly keep a mistress of his, Mrs. Lemon, in the house, and yet suffer Porter to keep her company. This was Endymion Porter, of the bedchamber to King Charles, of whom in his family there was a large piece by Van Dyke at Buckingham House. Van Dyke was much addicted to his pleasures and expense. I have mentioned how well he lived. He was fond of music and generous to musicians. His luxurious and sedentary life brought on the gout and hurt his fortune. He sought to repair it, not like his master Rubens by the laboratory of his painting-room, but by that real folly, the pursuit of the philosopher's stone, in which perhaps he was encouraged by the example or advice of his friend Sir Kenelm Digby. Towards the end of his life, the king bestowed on Van Dyke for a wife, Mary, the daughter of the unfortunate Lord Gowrie, which, if meant as a signal honour, might be calculated too to depress the disgraced family by connecting them with the blood of a painter. It is certain that the alliance does not seem to have attached Van Dyke more strongly to the king, whether he had any disgusts infused into him by his new wife, or whether ambitious— as I have hinted, of vying with the glory of Rubens in the Luxembourg, Sir Antony, soon after his marriage, set out for Paris, in hopes of being employed there in some public work. He was disappointed. Their own Poussin was then deservedly the favourite of that court. Van Dyck returned to England, and in the same humour of executing some public work, and that in competition with his master, he proposed to the king, via Sir Kenelm Digby, to paint the walls of the banqueting-house, of which the ceiling was already adorned by Rubens with the history and procession of the Order of the Garter. The proposals struck the king's taste, and, by a small sketch in chiaroscuro for the procession, in which, though very faint, some portraits are distinguishable, it looks as if it had been accepted, though some say it was rejected, on the extravagant price demanded by Van Dyck. I would not specify the sum, it is so improbable, if I did not find it repeated in Fenton's notes on Muller. It was fourscore thousand pounds. The civil war prevented further thoughts of it, as the death of Van Dyck would have interrupted the execution, at least the completion of it. 
He died in Blackfriars on December the 9th, 1641, and was buried on the 11th in St. Paul's, near the tomb of John of Gaunt. By Maria Ruthven, his wife, he left one daughter married to Mr. Stepney, a gentleman who rode in the horse guards on their first establishment by King Charles II. Their grandson, Mr. Stepney, was envoy to several courts, and is known by his poems, published in the collection of the works of our minor poets. Sir John Stepney, another descendant, died on the road from Bath to Wales in 1748. Lady Van Dyke, the widow, was married again to Richard Price. Besides his legitimate child, Van Dyke had a natural daughter called Maria Theresa, to whom, as appears by his will, he left £4,000, then in the hands of his sister Susanna Van Dyke, in a convert at Antwerp, whom he appoints trustee for that daughter. To his wife Mary and his newborn daughter Justiniana, he gives all his pictures, goods, effects, and monies due to him in England from King Charles, the nobility, and all other persons, whatever, to be equally divided between them. Other legacies he gives to his executors and trustees for their trouble, and three pounds each to the poor of St. Paul's and St. Anne's Blackfriars. But the war prevented the punctual execution of his will the probate of which was not made till 1663, when the heirs and executors from abroad and at home assembled to settle the accounts and recover what debts they could, but with little effect. In 1668 and 1703, the heirs, with Mr. Carbonnell, who had married the daughter of Van Dyke's natural daughter, made further inspections into his affairs and demands of his creditors, but whatever the issue was does not appear. Lady Lempster, mother of the last Earl of Pomfret, who was at Rome with her lord, wrote a life of Van Dyke, with some description of his works. Sir Kenelm Digby, in his discourses, compares Van Dyke and Hoskins, and says the latter pleased the most by painting a little. If you have enjoyed these podcasts, please consider making a donation to Art History Linkup, the charity which teaches the history of art to state school children in the UK. Art History Linkup is continuing its classes online during the pandemic, but would benefit from all our help. Donation details can be found on their website, arthistorylinkup.org. Thank you.